G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. In this episode, we speak to James Moody, founder and CEO of TwoShare, about how he found another startup inside of his startup. Next, we'll talk to Murray Herps about why the Fin Review believes tech startups are the key to the Australian economy. And finally, I'll talk to Murray about some of the great startups I found in Africa and America on my recent trip around the world. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Venue Mob, the biggest venue marketplace in Australia, and Studio Mint, workplace interior design for technology companies. Hi, this is Mark Pesci at This Week in Startups Australia, and it's been my great pleasure to know our next guest for over a decade now. James Moody, I met him when we were both panelist judges on The New Inventors. He was in a, on the show for its full eight years from 2003 to 2011. I was on it for seven from 2004 to 2011. It was always a pleasure to work with James because he was always so bright and so affable and so eager and also so incredibly young. You know, all of the rest of us were fossils. We'd already sort of done things in our careers. And here's a guy who had already been young Queenslander of the year, was flying off to Davos to talk to all the world leaders about whatever it might be. And by the time things were sort of closing up, the new inventors had become a general manager at the CSIRO. And were you, James, the youngest general manager in CSIRO history at that point? I uh, don't know about history, but at the time, yeah, I was Certainly. The, the youngest member of the executive. And, um, you know, I was really lucky to be able to work there for, for seven years. It was a great organization. So first off, welcome to the show. Second off, I really want to talk about your journey because you had, in a sense, reached the pinnacle of that interesting alliance between government and science in Australia with CSIRO, internationally renowned, internationally respected organization, perhaps now a few years later because of some budget cuts, not what it was. But you gave all of that up to go and do a startup. <laughs> what were you thinking? Well, it was interesting. It was um, 2012. I had been um, on, you know, working for CSIRO for, for seven years. Mm -hmm. I'd been on the executive team for three of them, mm -hmm. uh, where my role was to look after business development, um, uh, international activities, and, and actually the future. Um, what does the next 30 years look like? And But it was 2012. Um, my wife and I had actually just had our second, second young child, um, our second boy. And we both realized that actually there's not that many times in your life when you do get a moment to step out. Um, we, the timing was good for both of us, and so we actually took a year off. Okay. Um, we took 2012 off. It was very fortunate the new inventors had just finished, you know. <laughs> All right, you wouldn't um, have to be in Sydney every week. You wouldn't have to be in Sydney every week. But, no, no. Uh, but so we went, we, we actually spent a lot of time um, in France. Mm -hmm. We just decided, you know, let's enjoy, the children, mm -hmm. like, enjoy spending time with the kids. But it was really a period of self-reflection for me. And, you know, I, I, the, the sort of question that I and, and also my wife asked ourselves is, what, what do you want to commit the next 10 years of your life to? Right. Or more. And for me, there were three things that bubbled to the top of all that self-reflection. One was, you know, I'm an engineer. Right. At, the, at my very heart, I'm an engineer. Right. And, and I wanted to go back to building. Okay. I wanted to build something that so was going to be lasting. Well, and well, actually, you know, business development is really fun, but mm. it was you create a lot of stuff, but you never necessarily get to see it all the way through to right. the end. So I wanted to build. Um, the second one is I when I was at 
CSIRO, I, I wrote a book called The Sixth Wave, which yes. is all about the sixth wave of innovation, all about a world where, where resources become very focused. Um, the, the sort of central thesis there was that the fifth wave of innovation, what we call the information technology and communications wave, was all about transaction cost about finding the largest transaction you can, whether it's buying a book or finding information or, or otherwise, and use information technology to, to extract value out of reducing that transaction. The book that we wrote um, uh, with, with my co-author, Bianca O'Grady, really made the, 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 put forward the thesis that the, the global financial crisis was the transition point between the fifth wave of innovation and the sixth. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of data to support that. Mm-hmm. And then made the bold prediction uh, that the sixth wave would actually be more about resources, more about things, mm-hmm. more about the flows of things, the, what's, what's around. And, and from that came you know, collaborative consumption, right. so the idea of using resources. And the Internet of Things for that matter. The Internet of Things, sort of putting- yeah. Yeah, digital, six ways together, right? Digital natural convergence becomes the underlying platform for for a lot of this stuff. So, so it was interesting. I'd written the book, and it was like, well, you know, I don't know if you ever heard the expression, Mark, time to eat your own dog food. Oh, but you know, absolutely. it was like it was absolutely time to eat my own dog food, um, and and actually do something in that space. And and for me, the third piece was really I, I'm very much into a business where you can you can have a deep purpose mm. and and that purpose is not just to make money but it's to, to actually have a positive impact it's what I loved about Syrah. Um but where you can align that purpose with your business model and and it's interesting I've just come from the launch conference and I'll talk about this a little bit later on in this show the companies that won were the companies where you could tell that the individuals had aligned their deep purpose with the businesses. It wasn't just, I'm doing a photo sharing app because Instagram has got a billion users. It's, I'm creating a product that's going to help diabetics live their lives better because I'm a diabetic. Absolutely. And and it was so, you know, you put all those three things together. You know, I wanted to do something that had a strong purpose. And that often means you have to build it yourself. Right, um, you know, in terms of what what you find uh, that's deeply connected to me, I wanted to build something, and I wanted to do something in resource efficiency, and and it's actually where our first business came from, to share. And you know, I was also a young uh, a father of two young children, and right. it was that the purpose was there's all these things that sit around in people's homes. We worked out, um, you know, that are not not being used. Right, we worked out that's because of one of four reasons. They're either life stage items like kids' clothes, mm. uh, they're media like books or DVDs, mm. they're they're upgrade like mobile phones and sporting equipment and kitchenware and um, their fashion. So when you add all those together, believe it or not, there's over 100 billion of those items that get sold around the world brand new every year that are not going to see their full lifespan under the first owner. And only 5% of them ever finds their way to a second pair of hands. So most of them just find their way into landfill. Yep. They, they, what they do is they sit on the shelf and then eventually find their way into landfill. Right. And what we and of so, course there is, I mean, there's always always that, that casual level, particularly with infant clothing, that someone will be giving them to the next person down in the chain who has yep. an infant, and that's actually fairly common. That's sort of always gone on. Yeah, absolutely. And so for us, it was like, how do we take that practice? How do we how do we create it? We we realize that the biggest issue for a lot of people after talking and knowing myself, it's actually there's just too much friction right. in terms of finding the next pair of hands. Right. And, and this is where that the marketplace that we created um, called TwoShare um, arose from. Um, the idea that actually if you could just reduce the friction right. and, and in terms of finding a new ha- a home for things, if you could get that friction right down, then a lot of people will do it. And our target, interestingly enough, was the bin. We said, if you think about it, the bin is a wonderful technology 
right? It, it, it looks like a $5 piece of plastic, but it's actually a $5 piece of plastic connected to a billion dollars worth of infrastructure. Right. 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 It is the entry point into it's the a billion point. dollars worth of waste management infrastructure. And, and we never think about that, but we've built that up over 200 years right. to get rid of all the friction from waste. And what we realized is we needed the same thing for reuse. Right. And that was where the idea for Touche came up. Um, you know, firstly, when you say we're going to compete with the bin, um, well, it becomes all about giving because the moment you're trying to sell something, you're yeah. warranting and you're negotiating and all that comes hard. Um, you know, so it made a giving network. Uh, we realised that giving had to be a lot more social. So if you look at TwoShare, you know, it looks mm. a lot more like a Facebook stream than mm. it does like an eBay right. marketplace. But the really key piece, and this is this is where we started to learn a lot, was that the pain point, the big pain point between, in terms of giving things away, was actually getting the item from one person to another. Right, because they could be across town, they could be across the country. It really doesn't matter. Absolutely, and you know. The, if I wanted to give you, you know, Mark, you know, a, a, a set of golf clubs or something, right? right? We've got to organize. Right, to and I don't have a car, and, so, you know, how yeah. am I going to get the clubs? And we don't live that far apart, but I, I would still be a bit of a schlep for me to get the golf clubs. Absolutely. So we said, well, what would it look like if we built a, a bespoke logistics system at the back end? And that, well, okay, that's just. Okay, you ask yourself that. Australia, of course, is the land where logistics is, in a sense, the thing that underlies everything else because it's a big country. It's got population density and then low density. The companies that have mastered logistics in this company, the tolls, the Australia Post, whatever, these are some of the largest companies. companies in the country precisely because of that mastery of logistics. So when you sort of blithely toss that bespoke logistics system, I'm immediately thinking, but how could you even think that big? Uh, Well, it was interesting. I mean, we didn't want to actually send the stuff ourselves. It was like, who could we get to to transfer the things? But the fascinating thing about giving... And we, we only, it's funny, you learn this stuff in hindsight, right? It sounds like it's all very, but as you know, Mark, in the startup world, you know, you're sort of just doing it step by step. Right. But the fascinating thing we, we've since realized about giving was that the requirements are really high for logistics, right? If, you, if, it's, if there's any friction in that service, you, people stop giving things away. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. This week in Startups Australia, we'd like to welcome our new episode sponsor, Venue Mob. Venue Mob connects people with the perfect space for a party, dinner, conference, a meeting, or a wedding. The Venue Mob events team have scoured Australia to find venues that suit any kind of celebration large, small, intimate, over the top. And they have a dedicated business events team to provide exceptional service for corporate clients in Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane. With all these events and the millions of dollars worth of functions sent to partner venues every month, Venue Mob has the relationships and it has the buying power to secure the best price for the best venue. Find out more at venuemob.com.au. This is Mark Pesci with This Week in Startups Australia, and we're back talking to James Moody, who has now outlined maybe the essential business problem in Australia, 
which is logistics. How do we get things around in this country? So you've established to share, which is a network that allows people to give things to one another with a minimum of friction in order to make it possible that giving is not a complex activity, but is as simple, is an, as effortless as possible. So you've greased that wheel and now you come up with, okay, I want to give this thing to you. How do I get it to you? Absolutely. And if you think about it, if it's all about giving and it's all about competing with the bin, right, in terms of, uh, of friction, well, you know, the requirements are pretty high. First of all, it has to be door-to-door, right? Right. If you're asking people to walk down the road, they just, one we found, because that's how we started actually with our little experiments, they don't do it. And it's because um, they're time poor and it's just more work than they're willing to do. And you forget about it and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, secondly, it, um, for us, it actually had to be flexible in terms of payment. Um, because the receiver on Touche had to pay. Right. So that forced us to really think about all of our payment options. Right. Um, the third is we actually had to get flat pricing. We had to, you know, get rid of all the pricing complexity. And, and you'll notice that there's a lot of, believe it or not, I think there's a very big pain point around pricing. You can walk into the post office today to send a package and you'll have no idea, no oh. easy idea to work out how much it's going to cost me to send this package to Perth. I, I You're absolutely right about that. I mean, I've experienced that often going in, not having any sense of how much I'm yep. going to charge to send these packages. So so we actually chose for two share. We said, what it would look like if we just... And because nobody really wants to weigh things and measure things, we just said, what if it was like hand luggage in 10 kilograms? Right. So, and, you know, so we said, okay, let's just get rid of that piece of friction. Okay. Sort of like the yo for, for packages, you know, bang, <laughs> right. out it goes, as long as, it's, as long as it feels like it's hand luggage. Um, and then the final thing is we knew that we had to fit things within a $10 price point in the same capital city because um, really we were dealing with, you might call the residual value of a, of, of, um, uh, residual value of the item, right. like in a second-hand item, and the cost of the postage, and you had to fit between those two. Okay. So you put all that together in a great big blender and you realise that, yeah, there's, there wasn't really anybody immediately who could actually do those things, right. deliver from consumers to consumers. Okay, and so so if you, then do you just go, okay, well, we're stuck, we need to do this and we don't have it. So what happens at that point? Well, you start talking to a lot of folk. And we were really fortunate um, and, and, and we found an opportunity. And I guess this is, this is where you, uh, the, the joy of, of being in a startup space. And, and the, the opportunity we identified was that there are some courier companies and some great courier companies out there who are actually, thanks to the world of e-commerce, mm-hmm. delivering a lot of stuff to neighbourhoods, but their trucks are going back empty. And so you might say they've got an idle asset of their own, which is what you it's might like, call the like backhaul. container ships going back to China yeah. empty. Yeah. And, and so really we sort of started to identify that actually if we could, if we could make a service that works for them, and, you know, allows them to build their scale, allows them to effectively not just deliver things, lots of things, but actually create uh, pickup options and so on, um, then perhaps that they might be able to work with us to integrate and to get the price right and so on. And, and um, you might say that happy circumstance where we could actually get something that was good for consumers and something good for our partners um, uh, eventuated to the point where we can actually send now 10 kilograms um, in the same capital city for under 10 bucks, $9.75, and we can send 10 kilograms pretty much anywhere in Australia for $17.60. So I can send it from Sydney to Perth for 17 Sydney to Perth. And if you line up at the post office, I can tell you that 10 kilograms is going to cost you over $30. Easy, um, yeah. And so, so it was interesting. We, we solved that for ourselves. It was really about trying to create a service that our members, you know, the two-share members could use. But 
it's, it's funny we sat we sometimes you take a step back mm. from your business um it was around about the middle of last year mm-hmm. we took a step back and we'd, we'd looked at two share and two share was growing great going great guns you know mm. it was growing and growing and growing and we even just we just had a car somebody gave away a car <laughs> right. last week on two share which is just awesome um but we actually took a step back and we suddenly realized hang on we've just been able to create door-to-door delivery for the same price or less than everyone than the post office right um and you know indeed and and potentially you know that we, we realize well why are we limiting that service just to the members of two share but indeed you know here comes a really interesting business in its own right a business that's focused on consumers and small businesses the people who are lining up at the post office so by solving a problem in your own business you solved a broader problem for all businesses in the Australian economy, is what we're saying. Well, hopefully, particularly small to medium, very small businesses and consumers. So large businesses, they'll be able to work with career companies, they'll get decent prices and so on. It's the smaller ones, it's the consumers that that it's really hard for. And, and, you know, this is where the business that's now called Sendl Mm. um, came about, was the the idea, well, actually, let's create a beautiful solution for them. All right, uh, as an entrepreneur, juggling one business is a lot. You've now sort of gone through the process of juggling in a second business. How do you as a founder, as a CEO, decide, wait a minute, A, there's a second separate business here, and B, that we can actually handle running a second business? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question um, because, look, you know, yeah, having two businesses is really hard. <laughs> um, really, really hard. Almost everyone who sat yeah. in your seat would say having just one yeah, business yeah, yeah. is really hard. Yeah, exactly. You make it really, really hard. Yeah. I think, you know, what we're doing at the moment or what we've done is I'm very lucky. I've got an amazing team mm-hmm. and we've actually split the team into two. Okay, so, so there is a two-share team and right. there's a Sendle team. And, I'm, um, you know, two shares are much more established business. It's mm-hmm. found its product market fit. It's been, you know, it grows on its own accord. It, you know, it, it knows how to connect with people and, it, and it's got an entirely very strong pipeline of what it wants to do. You know, the interesting thing about Sendle is um, we launched Sendle in November. Right. Um, already we're getting really strong interest uh, mm-hmm. because I think we are solving you know, a very important problem. Mm-hmm. You know, we're saving people time. I actually think that anything that saves people time isn't is just awesome. Time is money squared. Well, time so. is the only non renewable resource, as That's they say. Right. And uh, you can't get more of it. And so, you know, if we can be saving people from lining up at the post office or, you know, saving that, if you think about it, small business, we're all in the same boat, right? right? If you're in a small business and you're spending, like one of our, one of our customers, you know, runs a, a cycle shop and, you know, and, they're sending something every day. Mm. If you're spending half an hour lining up and sending that at the post office because you're only doing a oh, couple of things, it's a huge cost. It's a huge cost, yeah. and you know, saving that time is is an amazing thing. So, so for us, you know, it's like, yes, we have two businesses. We're really passionate about both, and it's it's almost like um, the the thing is we continued learning. Each business learns from the other. Right. It's almost like you know how eBay and PayPal can learn from each other. You know, you got a marketplace and a fulfillment yeah. mechanism. So. In terms of uh, capital, did you have to go out and raise a lot of money for for two share to get it off the ground, or did it sort of become self sustaining right off the bat? Yeah, look, we were we were really fortunate. I mean, I put some my my wife and I put our own money in, but we we had um, some backing from some high net worth individuals mm-hmm. as well as um, NRMA motor, NRMA Motoring and Services, mm-hmm. uh, the roadside assistance organisation, and they they were some early investors into two share. Right. 
which was which was fantastic and and really helped us to scale the business you know the the hard part about two-sided marketplaces like that is really getting to liquidity so they helped us to get liquidity um just recently we've also um now got more investment for the sendal half of the business mm-hmm. you know two says doing its thing and and again we're very grateful that nrma has invested has, has put more money in as well as some more high net worth individuals do you see that growing essentially organically or do you think there's going to be are you going to make a big marketing push so that people are aware that the service is available so we we at the moment it's really interesting we're having people coming to us which is lovely um it's a good sign <laughs> which is a really great sign uh you know we we know that um don't know if you've read the book traction Mm. Mark, but that's a that's a great book, and it, we're really trying to practice that. And the the idea being that don't choose every traction channel, just choose a couple and right. work out have the metrics in place to know whether they work or not. And to listen to you, it sounds like B two B is your first traction channel here for Sandal. Yeah, small business is yeah. where we're really focusing, and um, and then consumers are, are all becoming part of it. And when you once you know who you're really focusing on, and you know we know that tr- traction channels like partnership is great. Um, you know, tr- you know. In other words, we're working within RMA around you know getting the word out via their channels and, and so on. So, Ian, and, and this this will be the closing question, I guess. In five years, is Sendil now a big player, or has it been acquired by one of the big players because it was eating too much of their lunch? Look, I, you know, we've been thinking very much around our vision for the company. I mean, for me. You know, I said uh, I said right at the outset when when we were sitting there in France. You know, mm. this is something I'm very happy to uh, to dedicate you know ten years of my life to if that's mm. what it takes. I don't think I'm in. I'm not in this to you know create ne- you know create a uh, sell out early. Um, I'm in this, and it's funny. I talked about the purpose for Two Share helping mm. all products see their full lifespan. We've realised that one of the big purposes for Sendle is to extend that, and it's actually to improve the flows of things around the world. You know, it's actually about the circular economy. And, you know, the circular economy is not just about stuff going from warehouse to house to home. It's about warehouse to home to home to home to home and home. And really where we see um, our purpose and the company being is is all about that, you know, being the logistics service for a circular economy. And look, for me, that means it's quite a long journey ahead. <laughs> James Moody. As part of the circular economy, I'm almost positive we will have you back on the show in a little while to tell us where things are going with Two Share and with Sendel. Thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks so much, Mike. Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and when we're recording This Week in Startups Australia, both Felix and I take a lot of behind-the-scenes photos, which we post to our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. You'll also find SoundCloud. You'll find links to the great companies that we're interviewing and the people and their stories. This week, there's going to be a lot of information around all the trip that I made around the world and the companies that I saw at the launch conference. All of that is going to be on our Tumblr. So check it out at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Hi, this is Mark Pesci with This Week in Startups Australia, and I'm here with Murray Herps, the Managing Director of Fishburners. And Murray, you've just had a beautiful back page article in the Australian Fin Review. Tell me about that. That was incredible. It's a highlight of my life. 
so far. My mum went around and bought about half of the copies that they printed. Uh, but I think <laughs> the other half, hopefully, uh, are being read by the people that need to read them and an audience that doesn't normally hear about startups in Australia. Well, what did the article say? Uh, I love this part. Uh, this could be the start of an awakening in Canberra about where the government needs to focus its energy uh, and limited financial resources. So really what they're doing is they're touting startups as a way to get the economy back into gear following the sort of peak of the mining boom? Yeah. it's So the story covered a few things, but uh, I think the, the part that resonated strongest for me was around kind of mining not necessarily being the future for Australia. And I know that's a bit of a cliche and it gets a lot of coverage already. Mm. Well, rightfully so, because it's not it's it's now the past of Australia, the recent past, but it's not the past. I think it's hard to be convinced that it is the past and not just, oh, we're in a little downturn or right. something and, and it's going to come back. Uh, if there were, there were 14 mining IPOs last year right. and there won't be 14 this year, according to uh, people at the ASX. Uh, and that's terrifying. The thought that... What the gravy train is over. Yeah, it's been wonderful, but we've now got a little bit of resources behind us. And and if you are startups, not a clear way of applying that to the replacement for the mining industry or, or supplementation to it. So what was the EFR's angle then? I mean, if they're, if they're, if they're touting you and fish burners and startups as a way into a new kind of economy, what, what are they also throwing into the mix there? What are they asking Canberra to do? Uh, they didn't so much ask, but uh, their angle was more paying attention to the number of politicians that are coming down to fish burners and, and top ranks of politicians, almost all the top ranks, right. uh, some notable exceptions. Uh, I want to name names, particularly for MPs overseas as well, like uh, heads of big com- countries that you would immediately recognise the startup programs for, mm. the, the prime ministers of those countries wanting to come to Fishburners, see what Australia is doing and how we're doing it, right. uh, but a, a little bit of an absence of Australian prime ministers. So it's, it's, it's almost... Yeah, it's almost like a reverse cultural cringe, right? Like we don't want to acknowledge how well we're doing, that we're actually punching above our weight in this, but we aren't getting any respect at home for that. Yeah. Uh, Paul McCarthy uh, from Circa, uh, he's got a line that I love. And Paul, if you're listening, sorry for saying this on this podcast, but he said uh, one really big attribute for Australian businessmen he saw was that uh, we were trustworthy Mm. or seen as trustworthy, Mm -hmm. uh, which is good and bad. You you go to somewhere like California and uh, they automatically discount everything you're saying by a certain factor that's relevant to their local entrepreneurs. But for Australians that are a little more honest about everything we're doing, it's hard to beat the drum and, and get some support for the industry. Well, and, and this is, you know, when we were talking just last week to Scott Hensecker and uh, Matt Allen, that Australians are so honest that they don't tend to tout their own virtues as much as, say, an American might, who yeah. is very good at sort of presenting his or her point of view with a great deal of bombast of a little bit of hot air and Australians are much more modest in this respect and is it is that part of this it, it is and I think it's a problem particularly for startups if if you have this amazing growth curve that you're aiming for and you're doing everything you can to hit the proof points along the way of, of this amazing growth 
And if you have any kind of modicum of honesty about the likelihood of you being this amazing company that you say you are going to become, right? right. Uh, it's it's very discouraging for investors, and you need the investors to have that confidence to really push it forward, and everyone else that's involved Whereas, as well. Whereas, you know, when I was in America last week, and we'll talk about that presently, everything is a unicorn. This is the next unicorn. That mm. is the next unicorn. It was like we were in a forest full of unicorns, mm. and know, because every startup really does believe that they're the next Facebook or the next eBay or the next PayPal or whatever it might be. Mm. There's a, a wonderful story about PayPal. Uh, I won't name the source uh, to keep him out of trouble, but uh, the, the core of it was the focus on hitting those proof points and the $20 per user cost of acquisition to this continue that growth and bring in the next rounds of investment as it got larger and larger. And then because of all that, when it did get hit by the fraud that right. uh, affected them, it, it wiped out a lot of their competitors they had enough in the bank that they could adapt and, and build the fraud detection and other, other things that they right. needed. And they were also large enough then that Citibank got a little bit scared and, and wasn't a real competitor for them. Uh, in Australia, I don't think that would happen because, you, firstly, you couldn't keep that amount of capital rolling in. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs here would struggle with uh, maintaining that image for their companies. Um, okay, so you talk now about politicians coming in and you also did a little bit of press this week around the perception in the startup community of which politicians are considered to be the most favorably disposed to startups yes uh this was a little bit cheeky so uh you're aware of uh, startup muster right. it's a project that i run that's the largest survey of australian startups and episode zero we covered last year's startup muster results yes thank you very much uh, but uh, this year we added a few new questions and one I wasn't sure about but we went with anyway was can you name an MP that's been particularly supportive of startups? There's an open-ended question uh, and then a lot of validation afterwards to figure out and clustering to figure out what they're actually talking about. Uh, and it was amazing that basically two politicians came out and the rest were far behind. Right. Uh, number one was Malcolm Turnbull. Okay. Uh, and of course Malcolm's got... Uh a lot of history in technology mm. because he was the was was it the chairman of Oz email wasn't it back mm. in the 1990s so he's connected even though he's not tech, personally a technologist he's certainly connected with technology and with startups through that mm. and that was 10% of startup founders in the survey so 650 startups right. uh, so about 60 of them saying Malcolm Turnbull was their favourite. Uh, and I, I put some effort in afterwards to asking some people why they said mm -hmm. that. Uh, and it was really just they like Malcolm's skill set. Okay. They, they think with his background he's the most likely to be making the right decisions for startups. Okay. Uh, and I think regardless of, of policy being supportive or not, just having that as a, a big plus for him. And I think the policy could be a little bit better as well, but uh, that's that's a separate thing and a much harder right. thing. And, and I would think probably almost anyone in the technology startup community would ask for a better NBN, for example, or, you know, oh. all... The, I, I know, I know. It's all, it's all of that stuff that is problematic when you look at the detail but in the theory looks really lovely when you look at Malcolm I'll put it's, that in there this is not your point of view this is the point of view of myself not the point of view of this week in Startups Australia I should be quite clear about that it's such a difficult thing because you 
we can complain and, and rightly so that our internet isn't good enough, but mm. we live in Australia and it's a massive place and it's very hard to put out fibre to every place in Australia. Yeah, except we also live very densely and it should be very cheap to do things very densely. Which I- immediately annoys a large percentage of the population and as a politician they can't consider yeah. that. So on Harris Street there's more startups than any other street in Australia and mm. that's where Fishburners is. And uh, to get fibre to our building would cost $250,000 mm. uh, and our microwave link uh, retails for $10,000 a month yeah. uh, for 500 megabits. Yeah. And I was at a dinner with uh, some Google people last week that had flown in from overseas. They're talking about their fibre to the home project right. where it's gigabit for $70. Right. I was trying not to uh, kind of weep into my dinner. Uh, I, I was <laughs> literally visiting a friend who now lives at the top of a, top of a canyon, basically underneath the Hollywood sign. This is over the past weekend. And he used to have really, really bad DSLs, so like a megabit. And I'd go and we would all complain about how bad it is. But now he's got... 50 megabit through his cable provider and I again was up there just using it weeping for Australia that this is not just sort of the garden standard here which you'd get this from Foxtel or Fortel from Telstra or whatever but in fact it's almost impossible to get 50 megabit service unless you've got NBN but now let's go on to the number two so we got Malcolm at number one we've had a little ranty about the NBN who's number two? <laughs> uh, that was Alex Greenwich so uh, independent for Sydney right? and he's, he's fascinating he spent a couple of weeks down at Fishburners, uh, this meeting with every single one. And of he, so the he startups. took he took an office here, basically. Yeah, took a days. desk here and and uh, and plonked himself right into the middle of right. all the entrepreneurs uh, bravely. And <laughs> literally, uh, oh, he's a politician. I think he's probably up to it. He's he's used to it. But uh, when he arrived, I was impressed with how much he knew about the issues yeah. that were present already. But then he spent you know two weeks meeting with about a hundred uh, startup founders around Fishburners and asking them what their problems were. Uh, that obviously raises the question of whether there was a bias from Fishburners. Uh, because I run Startup Master right. and I run Fishburners, we right. deliberately didn't promote it to Fishburners, okay. uh, the survey. Uh, only had 39 responses in Fishburners out of 110 startups that we have here. Okay. So it's underrepresented compared to other spaces right. around Australia. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. And this week... Twista has a second brand new episode sponsor, Studio Mint. Studio Mint is Australia's only interior design consultancy that works specifically with fast-growing technology companies. With a strong knowledge of the Australian tech space and an understanding of the unique needs of hyper-growth businesses, Studio Mint delivers unique, sustainable, and affordable office spaces that look pretty damn cool. The team from Studio Mint works to a philosophy that's based around activity, productivity, and well-being in the workplace, designing great-looking office spaces that people actually want to work in. Visit studiomint.com.au slash twist today. We're back this week in Startups Australia talking to Murray Herps. Okay. I was just looking at a photo Yes. It was incredible. It was yourself with a distant relative <laughs> behind you, uh, this quietly sitting. I think the Pesci's may have some words with you about it, yes. <laughs> but it was Rwanda, was it? And yeah. you were there visiting the gorillas. It's a photo, and, and the photo is, is up on the Tumblr, so you'll be able to see a photo of my trip to Rwanda, and I went to go hang out with the mountain gorillas, which is the tourist thing that you do in Rwanda, because it's their native habitat, and you, you hike up to around... 
almost 3,000 meters up the side of a volcano and you hang out with these various troops, families of mountain gorillas. And I, and I did do that and it was an amazing experience. And if you have any interest in primatology or our ancestors or our very close cousins, let's put it that way, uh, I advise you do it. One of the most amazing things about that was that the gorillas see human beings every day. They see a, we, human beings pop by around 10 o'clock in the morning every day when they're finishing breakfast. And so they really barely notice you. I mean, you're there, yeah. you're taking lots of photos, but they, they couldn't really care. Hmm. I'm so jealous. But uh, what else got you over there? So I was actually there uh, at the behest of the World Bank, the International Finance Corporation, uh, for a conference called Capital Markets East Africa, CMEA. And... I was there to talk to a bunch of central bankers and international bankers and finance ministers around disruptive financial technology. And it was a lot of fun. I got to have a panel with the deputy governor of the Central Bank of Kenya, who's really the man who made M-Pesa, which is the archetypal mobile money system in the world. So this is being able to use SMS to transfer funds. 60% of the Kenyan economy now, $2.2 billion in payments a day go through, goes through M-Pesa. And what was really interesting about this is that that's now transformed the Kenyan economy so much that, and what I think is interesting for Australians, there are now startups that are building fintech startups on top of it. And the most interesting of those is one called Copo Copo. Copo is the Swahili word to pay. Now, let's say, Murray, that you are uh, have a little corner store and I want to rock up and buy something from you. Now, m is not really set up for merchant accounts. And so I would have to basically make a transfer from my personal account to your personal account in order for me to, say, buy a can of soda or something. So what Copa Copa has done is it's actually provided all the merchant services layer so that you as a merchant can receive M-Pesa payments. But the genius of this is once they've done that, what happened in Kenya was that an economy that was largely cash has now moved to an economy that's largely electronic and everything has an audit trail which means that you now as a merchant have an audit trail of who's coming in and spending money. Hmm. And that now means that you can feed that audit, audit trail into an analytics tool and Copa Copa can now pre-qualify you for a line of credit with a Kenyan bank that would never have the time, inclination or money to look at you as a customer because you are too small for them to care about. That's incredible, given the number of merchants in Australia that can't get the same intelligence out of their merchant terminals. And this was my thought as I'm hearing them pitch. My mind is blown because not only is it something that they needed in Kenya, but I was like, oh, my God, we need this Bring in Australia. Yeah. And so and this is this is a plucky little startup. They're now bringing it to most of the countries in East Africa, Kenya. As the sort of home of mobile money is amazing. One of the things that's very interesting about mobile money systems, and we don't have mobile money systems in Australia or really in the developed world, because we always had really well-developed payment systems. We had credit cards. We had uh, FPLOS in Australia, which is very pervasive. It has been for such a long time. So we have multiple payment solutions. In Africa, they had nothing. So they've gone from nothing into a really well-developed mobile money. Not quite digital currency, but it sort of gives you about 90% of the capacity of, say, Bitcoins, right? Hmm. What's really interesting is that in Kenya, it's all Safaricom. That's the one dominant player. In Rwanda, which is where I was, there's three players, MTR, Tigo, and Airtel, which is Barty Airtel, one of, again, India's biggest phone company and one of the biggest phone companies in the world. 
And they each have their own mobile money systems. And I have this photo again. I'll put this on the Tumblr of the entrance to a market. And at the market, there's three stands right next to one another where as you're entering the market, you would transfer mobile money into physical money so you could go spend it at the market. This is a very normal market with pots and pans and vegetables that we, we saw on the countryside. And the reason you have to do that is because these mobile money systems can't allow you to interchange between the money systems. So if you have money in MTR and I have money in Tigo, we have to move it back into cash before I can give it to you, which is it's like saying that these are different currencies. So some of this is now going to be the central bankers probably having a fight with the folks who run the telcos. But basically, they're going to have to mandate that all these systems will interoperate because until they do, they don't get the scale that you have in Kenya to make the entire economy take off. It sounds like an opportunity. That's my thought. <laughs> so we spent the week in Rwanda. It was amazing. And then I went to California. So it's been my pleasure to be a grand judge at the launch conference. Now, to give you the idea here, the launch conference is started by Jason Calacanis, who started This Week in Startups, which is the parent show of This Week in Startups Australia. I've known Jason for 20-some-odd years now. And five years ago, he started asking me to come over and be a grand judge. So I have to sit through three days of pitches. There were 50 pitches this year. Plus, I have to go into the demo pit, which has about 200 companies. And I have to find companies in the demo pit to bring to the main stage so they can be seen by everyone. Wow. So I run around like a crazy man for three days, have a fantastic time, and then go into conclave with my fellow judges. And we get to vote until there's a new pope. I mean, until there's a winner. <laughs> And I just want to sort of, to bring it to Australia, there are some real trends that I saw. And I want to talk about four of the winning companies, uh, because I think they really illustrate new trends. Hmm. So Jason started an incubator, because who doesn't have an incubator these days, called the Launch Incubator. And there were seven companies in the Launch Incubator. And the company that won was a company called Recurrency. So Recurrency is a system that allows you to give a renewing donation. So it's basically a week, weekly donation to anything, person, whatever you want, if it exists online. They don't have to have anything to do about it. They don't have to set the page up. So mm. someone can say, I want to give Murray 10 bucks a week because he is a great guy. And they just set it up and it's done. And then they share the link and everyone else can. It's a great way of onboarding people to receive. It's onboarding. And, and that's the thing. And for instance, you could do this for Taylor Swift. If Taylor Swift doesn't come and take it in three months, all the money goes back to the people who... Oh, so yeah. there's a time limit. There's too. a time That's limit. If, if I haven't genius. gone and picked up the link and accepted the money, then it just goes back to the people who are giving it. <laughs> and uh, so it, it was a really straightforward. It's like, oh, my God, I can type in pretty much any subject that's online, create a page for it. And Bamo. And in fact, earlier today, Jason created a page for This Week in Startups Australia. And if you want to, you can throw us oh money. Oh, my God. I'm going right <laughs> yeah, there no, right no, no. now. No, no, no. Uh, no we'll, we'll have a link on the Tumblr. <laughs> okay. So that was one. And, and that one, because it was just a really good way of solving that problem. All right. Then Best B2B was a company called Rescour. Now, you know, there's something in America called Zillow, which is this big uh, property database for homes, right? And you can look up any home anywhere and find out what it's sold for. You can set parameters if you're looking for a home somewhere. Rescour has essentially now done this for commercial real estate. So they've basically created a big data database with all of the commercial real estate, starting with residential, but now actually moving into other properties in the United States. They've had to scrape this from I don't even know how many sources. And they now put it into a single database. They give you a dashboard thinking, I want to invest in a property in Chicago between this amount and this amount should be in this neighborhood, blah, 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 blah. And it will now start spitting out leads to you. And 
I looked at that. We all, all the judges looked at this and all the grand judges are like, oh my God, that's a license to print money because that is literally probably a $2 billion a year market. I don't know that they're going to have no competition in it, but building that database was non-trivial. And so there's a significant barrier to market entry. Any other competitor is going to have to build that database. And so there's a real sense here. And I looked at this and said, okay, someone should be doing that in Australia now because we have a very active commercial real estate market. A lot of people do it already, but they don't share the data. It's entirely for this investor or that investor. Right, right. exactly. Which, and they've struck the deals. Rescour has struck the deals. All right, so let's move along because I don't want to run out of time. Hmm. Uh, the company that won Best Design was a company called OneDrop. Now, Jeff Datchis, who you may remember from the old days, founded Razorfish, one of the true boom-to-bust stories. It was worth $100 million one day and basically not worth a penny next. Resurfaces 15 years later with OneDrop, which is a social network for diabetics. So it basically takes gluc- uh, glucometer results and allows you to track them in the app along with your activity and your food. So you can actually see how all of these are correlating. But then because it's social, it allows you to correlate it with millions of other diabetics. So now we have the first tool that will allow diabetics to understand their own behavior and the behavior of others and how that affects their blood sugar. And Hmm. Datchis is, as he revealed during his pitch at launch, and we'll uh, we'll put that up on the Tumblr, is an adult type 1 diabetic, which is rare, you know, runs in my family that people become adult type 1 diabetics because that's what they call childhood diabetes. It happens when you're young. But there's a few people who get it when they're older and it happened to Datchis. And so he's solving a problem for the world, but he's also solving the problem for himself. Finally, the winner, the big winner was a company called Abra. Now, Bill Barhart was one of the directors of Netscape back in the day, has now come back with a remittance tool. So let's say, Murray, that you're in the Philippines and I'm in Australia and I want to send you some money because you're family back home. And so Abra sort of combines the interesting parts of mobile money and that I would go to a human teller and I would give that human teller $200. They would deposit it into the Abra system. I would then have $200 in account in the Abra system. I could then push that to my relative. My relative could then go to a teller in the Philippines and get that $200 from that human teller in Philippine pesos. So... That's all quite normal. The behind the scenes is it's using Bitcoin and the blockchain, but it's doing it invisibly. No one ever knows that they're using Bitcoin. He's never storing the money because the money is being stored in the blockchain. So he's not a bank. He's not taking on any of the financial responsibilities. Okay, because that is the main concern of moving money between one country to another and the fraud detection. Right, and and, and, and AML, anti-money laundering. And this was the big question in the judges' chambers. Has he thought about all of this? And I sat with him at dinner afterward and quizzed him extensively. And he had thought about it. And he said, look, I'm not holding any of the money, so it really isn't my problem. Now, (laughs) let's hope that the central bankers feel the same way. Mark, I find this fascinating because we work in this little Australian Mm. petri dish and we see the things that are happening here, but Mm. to get a taste from a a lovely grand judge like yourself that's exposed in every way to the top companies over there, it's fascinating. I'm interested to hear, is there anything that you saw too much of over there? So the judges had to sit through... I think at least four different photo sharing apps. And I don't know what's made that space so impossibly 
hot right now, why everyone wants to do a photo sharing app, maybe because Instagram is so popular. None of them really stood out for any particular reason. Why would I use this versus why would I not use this? And the other thing that stood out was that there were at least four companies that did these kinds of chat apps that would allow you to coordinate with your mates for a night out drinking when you're at university. It was basically the app that would allow you to figure out which bar you were going to. And, you know... I, I guess kids need this. The one app that we remember it actually would show you the path that you took the night before if you couldn't remember. We ended up nicknaming that app the Blackout app. Yeah. I don't um, want to see that map. <laughs> well, sometimes <laughs> I've maybe. I've lost my keys. Maybe. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is. And, so, and we saw and none of these apps made it into the sort of final competition because n- although I think all of them legitimately thought they were solving a problem, we actually didn't see that there was much of a problem there that was worth solving or none of them really hit the nail so hard that we went oh my god you've invented a new way of solving that problem and i think this is if i wanted to give guidance to an entrepreneur don't start from oh where's a problem in the market that we need to solve start from oh my god i have this vision for transforming banking or transforming real estate or transforming diabetes or transforming being able to give people money and then do that also Problems that people care about enough to actually go to the trouble of using an application as well. There's an infinite number of problems out there, but a very finite number that I will actually care about enough to load an app or a new service. Right, right, exactly. Why will I load your app? And what is it going to bring me? And is it bringing me better health and safety? Is it bringing me a better quality of life? Is it bringing me information that I need to make money? All of these things are, I think, fundamental considerations that we're now at the point where we're all connected. Now it's really about why. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. I want to thank Murray Herps for being on the show with me today. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. James Moody left his CSIRO career behind to found two startups he believes in passionately. Mari Herps puts the same sort of passion into his work at Fishburners, and the Finn Review clearly believes that startups can be some of the saviors of the Australian economy. The launch conference showed over and over that passion is the key to winning products. It all comes down to passion, and if you don't have that, you need to step back and reflect, just as James Moody did, until you find it. Big thanks to sponsors Venue Mob and Studio Mint. Their support is making this podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Warmuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that's always a joy to listen to. Once again, thanks to James Moody and Murray Herps for coming on to our show today. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. <laughs>